Wednesday night I announced that we're going to finally get back to the book of Acts. I was only kidding. I realized, actually I was telling Terry, I got up and studied everything, read my multitude of uh, commentaries on Acts chapter 19. And as soon as I got done reading, I realized, wait a minute, this is the first Sunday of the month. I got to do our PowerPoint verse. So we're not going to get back into Acts this week. We will be back there next week. But for this morning, we're going to look at the beautiful verses we just read together and those surrounding it. So would you open your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll look at verses 8 through 12. Now, it's kind of interesting because I put together all the PowerPoint verses for the coming year once I get our word. And I actually did that sometime in November of last year. So as I, or after I should say, realized that this was the first Sunday of the month, I thought, gee, I wonder what our verses are for this week or this month. So I looked them up and I have to say, I was reminded that God is sovereign and his providence and his directions reign over the affairs of men. And he is careful to guide us through the scriptures with all of our twists and turns and breaks and special services and all that. And listen, after what we talked about last week, this is the perfect text for us to deal with this week. Now, the fact is, what we looked at last week was the blessings of suffering, kind of an oxymoronic title, if you will. And this week, we're going to look at being a blessing, though suffering or though going through difficult experiences. Now, our text from Paul last week reminded us that suffering has a value. There's a purpose within it. It isn't just random. It isn't that we're simply uh, going through things that mean nothing, even though life is painful and infringes upon us at times in ways that indeed are tribulational and uh, major trials. Well, what Peter is going to do is remind us again, not just of the value of suffering, but he's going to instruct us on our attitude and our coinciding actions when going through a season of difficulty. Now, we noted last week, we may not all share the same sufferings, but we do all share in God's faithfulness. God is faithful no matter what the manifestation of our trial, tribulation, or suffering. Are you here this morning? Now, no matter how suffering may manifest itself in our lives, the faithfulness of God is going to be a constant, even though circumstances and difficulties may change from person to person and season to season in life. Now, the next thing we observe was that trials and tribulations are supernatural events. We were told in 2 Corinthians 1.5 that the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation abounds through Christ. Now, remember the word consolation is the same word that is used by Jesus to describe one of the manifestations and ministries of the Holy Spirit, including him being our helper. He is also our comforter and thus his presence abounding in us during times of trial and suffering classifies those times as supernatural events. Now, we also 
put forth a bit of an effort, if you will, to correct errant thinking on our part. And it's the place we all go when something comes our way that is difficult and unexpected. Our minds will naturally say through the vein of the flesh, what did I do? Why is this happening to me? And we were reminded that suffering is God doing something in and through you, not to you. Now, we noted that God does allow suffering. We noted that at times there are grievous trials that are within his will. And these trials and tribulations, because they are of uh, supernatural encounter status, allow us to console others with the same Holy Spirit consolation that we have received was Paul's closing statement in our section. Now, last week we quoted the verses that follow the ones we'll look at this week. And for the sake of context, let me remind you of what we looked at concerning the blessings of suffering from 1 Peter 3. Last Sunday, we mentioned 13 to 17, where Peter wrote, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always, somebody say always, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, when Peter mentions good conduct, he is pointing back to the verses we're going to look at this morning. And it is to be the conduct when we experience the attacks of evildoers. When we suffer for what is good, and when our good conduct is partially at least defined for us, this will give us a good self-examination or barometer as to what we are to do and how we're doing at it through our text and time together this morning. Now, our topic and title is a phrase we've all heard. All of us have said it, and yet the familiar colloquialism is going to be looked at through a bit of a different lens. But here's our title this morning, and our title is simply Living the Good Life. Living the good life. Now, normally this phrase is associated with the description of somebody who supposedly has it all. They're living the good life. They have no cares. They have no worries, which is never true, no matter how much money you have. Amen. But it also reminds me of an anonymous quote that's been attributed to various sources over the years. But the quote is this. Some people are so poor, all they have is money. Now... The good life we will examine this morning is a life that is uninfluenced by material status, position, or power. It is the life that Peter is going to tell us we are called to, and thus it is the life that we should be living. Now in 3 John 1.11, the beloved says, John the beloved that is, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is what? Is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Now, this pretty much eliminates all the arguments we hear today about transformative uh, 
Christianity being false or there being no need for personal change that is adhered to uh, by many today. And some would go as far to say there's no moral code for the Christian to live by. However, we're told here that he who does good is of God. And it implies that there are things that are not good and therefore not of God. And therefore, these things have to be defined for us. And there has to be a standard source for us all. And that is the word of God. So we also need to recognize that this isn't an effort to become acceptable to God, nor are we talking about a works righteousness where we earn salvation. Living the good life simply means to live for God is a good way to live. Somebody say amen. Now let's see what that looks like from the vantage point of being followers of what is good. So will you stand, read with me please, from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. 1 Peter 3, let's pick it up in verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity we have this morning to better understand how to live for you and what is pleasing to you and best for us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we work our way through this text this morning, that your spirit would give us ears to hear what you're saying to the church, for we're all going to have our own painful experiences in life, We're all going to be either oppressed or persecuted in some form or fashion. So help us, Lord, to remember what it is you would have us to do that you have defined as good when we go through those times and seasons. We ask you to bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Peter opens this particular section with the word finally, and this attaches back to the things that he had been saying since chapter 1, which was really kind of a lengthy treatise of reminders for the Christian to keep in their hearts and heads. He first reminded the church in chapter 1 that they have an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. We've got special effects with the service this morning, so (laughs) pay no attention to the man behind the screen. So Now, he also reminded them That there are grievous trials that prove genuine faith. And again, there's the purpose of going through difficult things. He says in chapter 1 also in 13 to 16, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, or set your mind on this. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As what kind of children? Obedient children. This is now defined as not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. 
Peter goes on to further clarify in chapter 1, verse 22, that holy conduct is defined as obeying the truth. And obviously the truth is the truths of God's word. In chapter 2, he reminds us of our position in Christ. He admonishes admonishes us in 2.11 to live as pilgrims and sojourners in the world and to abstain from fleshly lusts. Now, he continues by reminding the church of their responsibility to live as good citizens and to work as good employees. And he moves into chapter 3 to the Christian household, where he offers words of instruction and exhortation to both to wife and husband. Then he says, finally, or in conclusion, All the things of the first two chapters and the beginning of the third, he now brings us to the how-to of what he just told us to do. Now, he names five characteristics of living the good life. And he starts with like-mindedness, all being of the same mind, consistent with what Paul would say to the church, that we should all speak the same thing, meaning every Christian ought to have the same manifestations of the Spirit going on in their lives. The all uh, the shared experiences, even among the diversity of gifts. Then he mentions sympathy. He talks about brotherly love. He says we should be compassionate and we should be humble. Now, these are not just randomly selected virtues. They are like fingers on a hand with the hand and the palm being central and all the other portions, the fingers are attached to that with Christ being the center and these other things radiating out from our lives. Now in Philippians 2, 1 to 5, we're told if there is any consolation in Christ or comfort in Christ or help in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being what? Like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Then Paul goes on to tell the church at uh, Philippi, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Look at the consistencies of what Peter is telling us here. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And let this mind be in you, which was also in who? Christ Jesus. He just described how the Lord approached lives and life and then told us to do the same. Now, being of one mind requires a common understanding of the truth. But it also reminds us that this like-mindedness and the four characteristics of the good life that follow tell us that when the Christian life is lived and expressed with arrogance or pride, that the truth is actually being denied. And thus we are to be a humble, thoughtful people who consider others. Now, the like-mindedness that Peter and Paul mentioned is manifested mind and love of Jesus Christ that we now enjoy as his saints. It is the willingness to submit ourselves to others for Christ's sake. And this undercuts many of the misunderstandings and hostilities that often divide the church today. A willingness or an outflow, if you will, of love of Christ from our hearts. 
And that love now is presented to us as a requirement. And it's not a self-righteous legalistic love. It's not a love that is based on scoring points for heaven. Rather, it's one that is based on the fact that we have been made heirs of the blessing of eternal life. And therefore, we must model our love after the love of God in Christ for us. Now... Peter starts with the mind, and we need to also begin our definition of living the good life through transformed thinking for you and I. And I just put this first point in very simplistic form, a reality you already know, something we always must remember, and it's just this. Listen, the more we are like the world, the less we are like Christ. The more we are like the world, the less we are like Christ. And much of the thinking in the church today seems to be that the more we are like the world, the more relatable Christianity will seem to be to them. And yet Paul said in Romans 8, 5 to 8, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit for to be carnally minded is what? It's death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh, what's it say? Cannot please God. Now, I want you to think about this through a series of contrasts. The world says, put yourself first and look out for number one. The Bible says, put others first and be like Jesus and learn to be the servant of all. The world says the end justifies the means. The Bible says the means determines the end. The world says you deserve to get everything you want. The Bible says you don't want what you actually deserve. Now, this is what the mind of Christ is going to teach us. And we need to retrain our thought processes and even our value systems if we are going to live the good life in this life, which is actually to live according to the word of God. That's where you say, amen. amen. Now, look at verse 10. He says, for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking what? Deceit, misrepresentations and lies. And Peter here quotes unannounced from Psalm 34, which is a marvelous psalm, one of my uh, life chapters, so to speak. And he is indicating that the principles recorded there should be something that are readily at hand in the mind of all who believe. They should be well known to the reader. Now, we need to connect the end of verse 9 to arrive at a proper understanding of verse 10, where he mentions at the end of 9 that you may inherit a blessing. Now, the first thing we need to recognize is that is not referring to eternal life. Now, we have the gift of God, which is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Somebody say, Amen. Now, David writes in this famous psalm that the righteous are to keep their lips from evil that they may see good days. And Peter is not understanding or interpreting this to present a works religion suggesting we can earn salvation by guarding our tongues. He speaks more of God's gracious calling and equipping and the inheritance of blessing that we receive that he wrote 
concern, uh, about in chapter 1, verse 4. Now, let me give you an example through what are the two misquoted sets of verses and most misquoted sets of verses in the modern age that will help us arrive at our next observation. Now, in Matthew six fourteen and 15, Jesus said, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. How many have heard that? Obviously, we see that often out in social media. But more prominently, we see verse 1 of chapter 7 quoted. I just saw this again the other day. Matthew 7, 1 to 5 says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove a plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the what? The speck from your brother's eye. Now, listen, first of all, Matthew 6 doesn't mean anything even remotely close to how people often interpret it today. Forgive men their trespasses and your heavenly father will forgive your trespasses. Many people say that eternal forgiveness is accessible through or exclusive to those rather who forgive other people. Now, that is to equate us forgiving others to the blood of Christ, which covers all sin. That's not a condition for eternal salvation. It is a condition for living the life of a forgiving person and avoiding the consequences in this life of forgiven sin. Now, the context is the same as Matthew 7, which is about hypocrisy. The Lord didn't say you can't ever judge anybody. He's talking about hypocrisy. He's talking to a group that are actually hypocrites who are calling everybody else sinners who are actually committing the same sins. He says, if you judge others for the same things you do and you have been forgiven sins and you refuse to give others, uh, forgive others of their sin, your this life experience is going to be one that is not blessed, but it will be the life experience of an unforgiving hypocrite. Now, point is this. Peter is not saying, watch your mouth and you go to heaven. But what he is saying is, on your way to heaven, watch your mouth. It's a good, it's a way to love life and see good days. He'll talk more on the subject in chapter four, where he says in verse eight, and above all things have fervent love for one another. And here's how fervent love will manifest itself in one way, at least. Love will cover a multitude of sins. Now the word cover means to set aside. And back to our two famous sets of misquoted or misappropriated verses. I would have to say, I would rather that while on my way to heaven, that the Lord set aside the this life consequences of my forgiven sin. So I'm choosing to live the good life now and live for him now. You're not going to miss out on anything if you live for the Lord. Hello? You're going to be living the good life. A love-filled life and good days sounds much more appealing than what lie at the end of verse 12. 
Now, for our subject this morning and living the good life, we can add this to our change in thinking. It's just, again, a simplistic reminder. Listen this morning. Christianity isn't part of life. It is our life. Christianity isn't part of life. It is our life. Loving life and good days will be our life description if we have the like-mindedness of verses 8 and 9. And there will not be any areas of our life where our Christian faith is not manifested. In James 3, 7 to 12, we're told, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame what? Contain the tongue. Listen to these kind things that James says about a tongue. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Somebody say amen. Amen. And then he illustrates it like this. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives? Now pay attention. He said, my brethren, he's talking to other believers. Bear olives or grapevine bear figs. Thus, no spring, say no spring. No spring yields both salt, water, and fresh. Now, listen. No man can tame the tongue. But God can. No man can transform the cursing mouth, the one that speaks blessing. But God can. No man can take the salty words of a person with a critical spirit and make them an outpouring of living waters. But God can. And this is what we're being told here of the manifestation of having the mind of Christ. It's going to impact the things that we say. It's going to impact our perspective on life. And listen this morning. Christianity is not church attendance, so Christians should attend church. Christianity is not putting something in a pass plate or an offering box, so Christians should do that too. Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts that earn you salvation, but there are things that Christians should do and not do. Are you here this morning? Now, the reason we do and not do certain things is because we are living the good life. We want to live the good life before the Lord. And in Matthew seven thirteen to 14, we're told to enter by the broad gate. Enter by the what? The narrow gate. Why? Because wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to what? Destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, listen, as I was examining these concluding words uh, of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, I just was thinking about this word picture that's drawn for us and reminding us all that the narrow path is narrow all the way to heaven's gate. And it hasn't broadened any over time. And many in the church today don't like that. But listen, not liking something in the Bible doesn't change it. Amen? Listen, I don't particularly like the middle portion of John sixteen thirty three, but that doesn't change it. Where Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. You can cross that out as far as I'm concerned. I don't like that, but is it true? Well, listen, you can't pick and choose which parts of the Bible to believe any more than you can be a part-time Christian. Listen, Christian Christianity is a way of life. It's not simply a part of our lives. 
Now listen to Colossians 3, 1 to 10. I started reading, actually I was going to put verse 1 in, and then I thought, man, verse 2 is good. And when I read verse 2, I thought, look at verse 3, that's awesome. (laughs) And then I got to verse 4, and I couldn't cut it off there. Well, we're reading 1 to 10 of Colossians 3. (laughs) If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are where? Above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on the things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life, then uh, you will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourself once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth, unless the joke is really funny. Know what it says? No. Do not lie to one another. Here's why. You put off the old man and his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Jew or Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, what's all that mean? Christ is not part of life. He is our life. He is who we live for. He is the determining factor in all of our decisions and all that we do until we get home on the narrow path. Amen? Now, let's look at 11 and 12 and wrap our time up together. Now, Peter goes on to say from his quote of David in Psalm 34, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, Peter moves from the description of the good life to the motivation for living the good life. And he says, just simply, the Lord is watching. God is watching over us. Now, it would not be outside the context of our verses or the narrative of the Bible as a whole to say, you better get your act together. God is watching. Now, that's true, but it's not the intended meaning of our verses. And we don't want to ignore that knowing God is watching creates an element of accountability through recognizing there's an authority that is greater than you and I, and that our own opinions are irrelevant in the sense that there is one who sees all and knows all and hears all that we are doing. I'd say that's a pretty good incentive to live a good life, wouldn't you? Now. But again, though true and biblical, that's not primarily what is in view. What Peter wants us to see is that the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, not for judgment, not for chastening, but so that his ears may be open to their prayers. It's what he says in uh, this 11 and 12 scenario, seeking peace and pursuing it, turning away uh, from evil. The eyes of the Lord are watching and his ears are open to our prayers. And yet the psalmist would say in 66, 18, if I regard iniquity where? 
in my heart. The Lord will not, what? Here, the word regard means to give place to. And we might even define it, at least in terms for much of what we hear today. If we defend something that the Bible has declared to be a prohibition, something that we are not to participate in, if we regard iniquity, if we give place to iniquity and make that determination in the seat of our feelings, mind, or feelings, thoughts, and emotions, then we have basically rejected the word of God and the Lord will not hear. Peter also said earlier in the same chapter in 3, 7, Husbands likewise dwell with them, them being the wife, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers, what? May not be hindered. See, this is the context of what Peter is talking about now. Now, the eyes of the Lord is a wonderful Old Testament phrase. It was used many times in the Old Testament to highlight God's watchfulness over his people, Israel. And it implies a loving, caring, and watchful oversight. Now, we're told here the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, the Hebrew word translated as face simply means the part that turns. That's the literal definition of the word. And obviously it applies uh, to God turning and watching over all things. Now, we might understand it by considering it as a change of expression. Have you ever said something to somebody that was either hurtful or insulting and you didn't realize it until you saw their expression change? Anybody else have that experience? Well, you're going to leave me hanging up here. I'm the only one that's ever done that, right? Now, 2 Chronicles 69 reminds us, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of who? Those whose heart is loyal to him. Now, God is watching and listening, and he is looking for opportunities to show himself strong on our behalf because he hears and answers our prayers. And yet we're told here that he looks at the evildoer differently, even those who commit evil as believers. Now, let me explain that. Those who believe in him, love life and have good days, even in the face of life's constant trials and tribulations, because they turn from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. And this is why Peter would say and remind us later in chapter 4, in verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Now remember the word suffer means to experience a sensation. It also can be translated as to be affected by. Now that means what Peter is saying about the face of the Lord being against evildoers is telling us that living the good life keeps us from being affected by or experiencing the sensations brought about by doing things that are against the will and word of God with the examples of being a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. I've always found that to be a rather interesting grouping that the Holy Spirit would inspire Peter to liken the busybody to the murderer and thief. Now, here's our last takeaway about living the good life. Are you ready? Listen, 
Sinning after we're saved will not cost us our salvation, but it can rob us of blessings. Sinning after we're saved will not cost us our salvation, but it can rob us of blessings. Now, I want you to think about this. This is a debated issue. It's debated even within the Calvaries, but I don't find within the pages of Scripture the doctrine of unregeneration. I don't see anything taught about taking the Holy Spirit out of us. It's not like the Spirit coming upon someone in the Old Testament and the Spirit departing from King Saul because of his disobedience. There's something exclusive to the church, and that is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we don't have the doctrine of the unindwelling of the Holy Spirit or the unregeneration of one who believed with true and saving faith. Now, I'm sure we're on the same page when I say I prefer the Lord's eyes to be on me and his ears open to me, and I'd rather experience his blessings and the consequences of even forgiven sin on this earth. I think you would agree to that. I do not want his expression towards me to change from caring, watchful overseer to loving disciplinarian. Now, Peter would go on in the same chapter as reminding us not to suffer or experience the consequences, if you will, or be affected by being a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a busybody, where he says in 417, the time has come for what? Judgment to begin where? At the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, obviously, this is not a great white throne type judgment. Jesus was judged for our sins. And the eternal blessing of inheriting eternal life that is incorruptible and undefiled will not be taken away from us. This is not a judgment to determine one's salvation or even a judgment of sin in the sense of eternal destinies. It is a judgment in the sense of allowing this life consequences for sins Jesus paid for on the cross. Think about it. If a Christian steals a car and gets caught, do they skip jail because they're saved? No, of course not. Listen, do Christians who commit sexual immorality find an immunity from contracting a sexually transmitted disease because they're a Christian? No, of course not. This is why the Lord is saying in all the things that Scripture has told us to refrain from and avoid that living the good life is a life apart from those things. This is why Paul will tell the church at Carnal Corinth, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will be God to you, and you will be my people. Now, listen. In Ephesians four twenty-five to 31, Paul says this. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. In other words, before the end of a day, make sure that you have made things right with whomever. Nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole, try and slow down a little bit. Let him who stole what? Steal no longer. 
but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who is who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice or ill intentions. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving the people you like, even as... Forgiving who? One another. Even as God in Christ forgave you. This is the good life spelled out for us once again by Paul in the handbook of the Christian faith, the book of Ephesians. So, I say let's choose a good life. Let's choose to live according to the word of God. Listen, it's not some narrow-mindedness that God has called us to. It is a fullness of joy that he has called us to. It is a life that is abundantly blessed that he has called us to. And listen, I am thankful for God forgiving my sin and giving me eternal life. And I am equally as thankful for God staying his hand and watching over me and protecting me from some of the this life consequences of forgiven sin. So I don't want to live in a hypocritical manner and do the things that uh, we mentioned earlier and thus forfeit the blessings of God. Listen, living for God is the best life. Amen? So if he said, do not be drunk with wine, do not be drunk with wine. Why? Because he doesn't want us to have any fun. Right? Listen, I tried that whole booze makes things fun thing. Didn't work. Almost cost me my marriage. It wasn't fun. It was awful. It was hell. And that's why the Lord said, hey, don't be drunk with wine. And it's interesting that... uh, in the Old Testament, the concept of drunkenness is uh, the, the phrase literally means a wine tattler. In other words, it loosens people's lips up to where they say things they wouldn't normally say if they were sober. And listen, I can't even tell you how many things I wish I'd have never said when I was drinking. And that's just a list uh, to my wife. Things that I would do anything to take back. And that's not the best life. That's not the good life. Listen, if the Lord said don't steal, it's because... There are consequences for that, right? In this life, even though it's not something that's going to disqualify us from heaven. Now, listen, if we don't acknowledge that it's wrong, obviously, and if we don't confess our sin, as First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful to uh, forgive our sin. He is one who is just and right, and it is just and right for him to forgive our sin. But we need to remember that the word confess means to see of or speak of as the same. In other words, we cannot look at the Bible and say, you know what? It says that this particular sexual activity is a sin, but that's out of step with culture. So I'm going to reject that. You're not confessing sin then. You're defining sin yourself. And this is the issue that God takes issue with. He doesn't want us trifling with his word. His word stands fast in the heavens. It is immutable, meaning unchangeableness. It doesn't change for it would be unfair to change down through the ages and from culture to culture and season of history to season of history and even country to country. It would be unjust of God to say fornication is a sin in the third century, but it's okay in the fifth through the twelfth. 
Because one group would receive the life experiences and even the eternal destiny of the unrepentant fornicator, and another would avoid it altogether. Listen, the standard has to remain the same throughout the centuries. And God is unchanging, His Word is unchanging, and what is good is unchanging, and what is displeasing to Him is unchanging. And therefore, we need to keep our eyes on his word. We need to live according to it because that is how you live the good life. That's it. That's how you live the good life. And we want to live a life that is blessable. And I am thankful, as I said, That God hasn't said in the midst of all the things that I have done, even in the time after I recommitted my life to the Lord and fought the booze and struggled to stay sober and violated his word, I am thankful that never once did he say, I've changed my mind about you. He kept his eye on me and he kept strengthening me until finally It was put behind me, and these last three weeks of sobriety have been awesome. It's a bit longer than that. Decades longer, as a matter of fact. I don't know what the number is, 38 years, something like that. But anyway, God is good. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of being submitted to, because if I can borrow an old TV show title, Father Knows best. Somebody say amen. And Lord, we are grateful again for your word this morning. And Lord, uh, the lessons that we can take home to remind us not to allow trials and suffering to change our attitude. Lord, the pressures that we are experiencing today in the world and uh, being called bigoted haters for our uh, moral positions that are based upon your word. Lord, help them not to push us into these things that we studied here this morning. For we want to see good days. And we want to be those who remain in a blessable state. We thank you for our uh, eternal security, so to speak, Lord, that nothing can separate us from your love and no one can snatch us from your hand. So, Lord, I pray that we, as your sons and daughters, will be living the good life as we await the eternal life in which all of the things we fight against and struggle against in our flesh will be banned and banished forever. Until then, Lord, help us to live life as you have defined it, not our opinion and not the pressures of culture. And Lord, if they call us outdated and out of step, may we continue to keep in step with your word. 